to the Military Psychology Podcast Network, the Society for Military Psychology, Division 19 of the American Psychological Association, is producing several series applying psychological principles in military settings. We'll feature topics including diversity, consulting, behavioral health in the military and specialty areas, including operational aviation psychology. We address the question, what is military psychology? And answer it a number of ways. Follow the Society for Military Psychology at www.militarypsych.org. This episode is brought to you by Grid Energy Solutions, LLC, striving to enhance the resiliency and network recovery capabilities of the nation's electric power grid. Grid Energy's mission is to facilitate the restoration of the American electric power grid in the event of catastrophic failures resulting from natural events or human actions. For more information, please inquire at contact at grid-energy.com. Good morning and welcome to Diversity Dialogues, a podcast of Division 19. Today, I'm pleased to have with me Drs. Brad Johnson and Dr. David Smith. Dr. Brad Johnson is a professor at the U.S. Naval Academy and a faculty associate at John Hopkins University. Dr. David Smith is an associate professor of sociology at the Naval War College. Both are accomplished speakers and authors and travel internationally to talk about the value of mentoring women and the value that organizations have as well as ethics. Thank you for joining us today, gentlemen. Glad to be here, Tracy. Thanks for having us. So I wanted to just open up and ask, what is the value of having women at the table in a leadership sense? That's a great question. I'll start off. This is Dave. And Brad, I know you have thoughts and ideas about this as well. And, you know, it's interesting that across organizations out there today, when you ask, in particular, male leaders, I think women understand this already, but in particular male leaders about how important gender equity is in their organization and having women's representation across all levels of leadership, men generally are in favor of that. But the challenge is that we we just don't see that playing out in terms of the, the actual representation numbers. And the research is also very clear about this, that again, organizations that have, again, widespread gender diversity across all levels of leadership, all the way to the most senior levels, are better performing organizations. They make better decisions. They're more creative, more innovative, more collaborative. And certainly, they're much more likely to be effective in terms of accomplishing their mission, whatever that mission might be. And so again, all the reasons are there from, if you think about it from a functional or business perspective, the reasons are all there too as well. Yet we still find that, again, women are excluded in a variety of different ways and everything from the recruiting and hiring perspective all the way through the advancement, promotion, retention, and even outside the military in terms of pay in lots of ways. Brad, other thoughts? Yeah, no, the data is so interesting and so clear. I mean, you know, Dave and I do a lot of work in the corporate world, and, and there it is absolutely clear when you have women fully integrated into leadership all the way up into the C-suite, you get better outcomes. And, it, you know, certainly it's bottom line in terms of dollars and cents, but it's also in terms of creativity and being prepared for what comes next in terms of 
being geared for the future. In terms of succession planning and retention of high talent, it's great to have senior women in your organization. And I'll also just add that in the intelligence community, Dave and I have been doing some work with the intelligence community, and they will tell you right now that they will no longer send a team on a mission if it doesn't include women in the planning and in the execution, because the outcomes are just better. And so we know this in the military, we know this in intelligence. It's good for all of us, not just women. It's good for the organization. So what are some of the challenges that women face to negotiating and getting to those places of leadership? Yeah, this is Brad. I'll start with the the one that's kind of low-hanging fruit that Dave and I talk about a lot. And that's just the implicit bias in lots of organizations. And one of the wonderful, well-established effects in psychology when it comes to assumptions and biases and attitudes is the women are wonderful effect, right? So you ask men in research studies, what do you think of women? And the answers are not overtly negative. There are usually things like, oh, women are great. They're kind, they're caring, they're very nurturing. Women are terrific. What you're not hearing, though, in those responses are women are take charge leaders. Women should be promoted. Women should be on the leadership team. Those things are missing. And men often miss that, that their implicit kind of thinking about women keeps them from promoting women, keeps them from sponsoring, keeps them from mentoring women the way they do other men. And in these very male-centric worlds like ours in the military, that is, it's absolutely essential that men are willing to do that. But Dave, other things that keep women on the sidelines? Yeah, there's a host of these when it comes to, in particular, when it comes to biases and stereotypes. And, you know, one of the other ones, Brad mentioned these, this idea that, you know, women not being seen by men in particular as being leader material or being strong enough maybe to, to, or tough enough to cut it. And so there's also from a professional perspective, this holding back or not seeing women as being worthy of investment in terms of resources go. And that's time. It could be a job opportunity. It could be all sorts of things right around professional development and growth. So if men are not seeing them in that way, then they're going to withhold a lot of these important resources out there. I think that you know some of the other aspects that are also kind of challenging in terms of biases is we see that again women's contributions aren't valued as much and so in a group setting and a team setting that again we operate in in the military so often if their ideas and their contributions and their performance is not seen as being valuable then they're just not going to continue to get the opportunities to be included and to really be taken seriously. And we see this in a, in a host of different ways. One is just often when women's ideas are voiced in a meeting, for example, they're often not seen as valuable and, and then not taken seriously. But then when a guy says this, almost the same thing later on in the meeting, suddenly it's the greatest idea since sliced bread. And we find that you know in many male-dominated and male traditionally male organizations out there, we call this bro-appropriation, right? The, the men's, I, men are appropriating women's ideas and taking credit for them. And women just don't get the credit for them in the same way that men do. And it's not just that. It's women don't get the same amount of airtime in terms of airing their contributions and contributing. They're interrupted more often. And it's interesting that it doesn't happen just at the lowest levels. It happens all the way to the most senior levels in our government. And for example, the Supreme Court, some really interesting research out there about Supreme Court justices and how 
they get less time to make their cases, their arguments, and they also are interrupted more than their male colleagues out there. So again, there's a lot of these very kind of persistent cultural biases that women are contending with and that Again, it's helpful when we call them out and disrupt this in a moment so that we can see them for what they are. And one more I'll just add, Tracy, is the whole bias around leadership, right? There's a whole field of research now on gender and leadership. And, you know, you can't apply this to individuals because there's so much variation. But in terms of big group differences, you know, men tend to be more agentic, Women tend to be a bit more collaborative and democratic and relational in their leadership style. And in very male-centric organizations, that approach, although it's quite effective, and many people say, yes, I'd love to work for someone who has those behaviors and skills as a leader, that leadership style gets dismissed by men. And so that can lead to biases about whether she's ready for promotion or the next step. So I think the leadership stuff is something we've got to overcome as well. The last part of that is interesting. One of the research teams that I've been working on for the last few years, we looked at the subjective language used in performance evaluations for military. And really interesting, you wouldn't expect there to be a gender difference in the subjective language used to describe leaders. But yes, there is. There's a statistical difference in how the type of words and language that we use to describe men and women as leaders. You know, as you're talking about some of the research and and some of the challenges and the barriers, I can't help but think of some of the myths that I have heard about women in leadership, particularly in military, that women aren't decisive enough. Women tend to be more emotional in their decision making, that they wouldn't be able to handle the pressures because they're too busy with raising their family or family issues come up so they don't have the time to invest. What would you say to individuals who might still hold some of those beliefs. Yeah. So Dave, I'll just give our favorite here. <laughs> from, I, I'll just, I'll share with you, Tracy, one of the things we heard from one of the men we interviewed when we were doing the research for Athena Rising. And then Dave can tell you more about what the research actually shows about men and women and their reasons for, you know, leaving work when they do. One of the men we interviewed said, yeah, you know, I would invest more in women But, you know, I just kind of see them as ticking time bombs of maternity, right? Like any moment they're going to begin having children. So, you know, I just don't see her as a good investment. And, you know, we might laugh about that, but it is often a really powerful implicit bias men have. And, you know, think of it as a maternity sort of bias or, you know, I tend to only see women through the lens of motherhood. And it's hard for me to see her as a leader. The data shows that, you know, the whole notion that women are leaving organizations like the military simply because they want to have kids is just not true. So, Dave, you've been looking at that stuff. Yeah, in particular, you know, broadly in the civilian side, there was one research study that was done and they asked that particular question looking at the reasons why men and women are leaving. And so in the last, if they were making decisions about leaving an organization in the next couple of years, And again, a large group of them are doing that, men and women, but they largely leave for the same reasons. And only about 2% of them are leaving for family-related reasons. It's really about their boss. And then it gets back to the kind of, again, what we hear is the socially acceptable answer. And then nobody wants to call their boss a jerk or whatever that they might feel about them, right? But their organization is just a very toxic place to work. Nobody really wants to say that, but it's socially acceptable to say, well, I'm going... I want to go find some place that's more family friendly. And that tends to be what we think of. It's interesting in the military, we find almost the very same thing that 
men and women leave for roughly the same reasons. And the top three typically have two of them at least that are related to family or having children or partnering or spending more time with family, if, if nothing else. But men say them at the same rate that women do, right? So they give the same reasons. So there's something, there's another reason for why we see differences in terms of retention and attrition between men and women. So one of the topics that you both are so passionate about and is particularly in and spell it out in Athena Rising is the importance of mentoring. So we talk about, you know, how do we invest in these women as leaders? And it really starts from how are we developing them and where do we start there? So tell me a little bit about your research on the value of men being able to mentor women effectively. Yeah, I can start, Dave. And this is such an important topic. And and you're right, it really is something Dave and I are passionate about. And we've been doing research in this area for uh, quite a while now. You know, there's so many elements to this, Tracy, but I, I would say in terms of the why question, why men, we often get that question. One of the things that's really important to know is that women do mentor other women. There's often a myth, right, that women don't help other women. And that's really not true. There's no real evidence to support that. But why men? Well, you look at an organization like the military and you look around and the farther, number one, women are a clear minority. And then as you go up in terms of rank, there are fewer and fewer senior women often available to serve as mentors for junior women. So if you really want to change the gender balance, if you really want to get to equity, if you really want to have more women in senior leadership, men have got to fill that void. Men have got to step in. They've got to be willing to mentor across gender. Too often we find that men are reluctant. And there are a number of reasons. You know, we've mentioned some of the biases that may keep them on the sideline, but there's also anxiety, right? I'm not sure how it'll come across. If I offer mentoring to a woman, I'm a little worried about that. I'm anxious. I don't know what to do, right? I, I just don't have the toolkit. I don't have what Dave and I call manscript for having a cordial, collegial, non-romantic relationship with an adult woman in the workplace. I have a manscript for all kinds of other relationships with women in my family, but no one ever gave me that workplace relationship script. So guys are anxious. Some guys even worry about what their partner will say if they start spending a lot of time mentoring a woman at work. So for a wide range of reasons, men can be reluctant. They stay on the sidelines. They don't engage. And that hurts us all, hurts us as an organization. But Dave, other things I'm missing and crucial in terms of what men can do? Yeah, absolutely. And I think a couple other things, just to reiterate the reminder that you know mentoring is Fundamentally, at the end of the day, this is about the inclusion piece. As we talk about DNI, diversity and inclusion, we tend to do a really good job around the recruiting diverse groups of people into the military, for example. But the retention part becomes the hard part. And this is really where inclusion comes in. Where do we people feel accepted, where they feel like they belong there, right? And they really engage. And, and the part of that is the relationships that they have and other people showing that they care. And when this is where mentoring is so critical is because if you have a really good mentor, an excellent mentor, you, they're showing that they care and they're invested in you as a person. They're invested in you and your career and your professional development. And that's what mentoring is all about. And that's, again, what the research shows too, is that organizations benefit from great mentoring cultures. 
higher, again, higher retention, lower attrition, more organizational commitment. Because again, we see the mentors as representing the organization. So therefore, this is the organization investing in me and showing that they care. More organizational identity, they identify with becoming a member of that organization. And they're, they're much more likely to go back and again, kind of give back and pay it forward, right? And do more mentoring as well. So investing in the mentors in particular is a really important part of this. The other half of this that we often forget about, I think is so critical that Brad and I love to talk about it, remind men too, that this is important for them, both as mentors and as mentees. But what we find in the research is that when men mentor women, and oh, by the way, when they're mentored by women too, that they there's benefits for them that go, again, beyond what they would get if they were mentoring just another guy. And that is that they're going to have increased access to information because, again, they're part of a different group of people. Now that they're pulling into their network, they have a wider, broader, diverse network, both internal and external to the organization. And we think the most important part here, especially from a leadership perspective, is that we find that they have these enhanced interpersonal skills, right? More EQ, more empathy. And who doesn't want more of that? And we need more of that in our leadership, especially as they become more senior in our organizations. And, and the wonderful thing is that, again, you don't check that at the door when you go home at night, right? That you get to take that home with you. And we find that it makes them better parents and partners as well. So lots of great benefits to doing more of this and creating a culture of it in your organization. And Tracy, if I can just give you like maybe my top four things that Dave and I found in our extensive interviews for Athena Rising. We interviewed lots of women and we asked them, have you had a male mentor? And almost all of them had. And we asked them, well, what did he do behaviorally that was really helpful for you? And so if I had to say, you know, here's the top four things dudes can begin doing immediately in their mentorships with women, here are some of them. And some of these are kind of an epiphany for guys. They're not that hard, but they surprise men when they hear them. Number one by far that we heard from women was, could you just listen? Could you not try and fix me? Could you not try and solve my problems? But could you just listen, be a sounding board? Could you not make assumptions about me, right? So because I'm a woman, then I'll want blank or I'll not want to do this in my career. Don't do that. Listen to her find out what her career dream looks like, and then, you know, begin to ask her questions about that, but don't assume. Sponsor her. Quite often, women don't get sponsoring as part of a mentorship. Men seem to be a bit reluctant to loudly sponsor women. You know, they're worried maybe about what the optics might be or how that may come across. And then use your social capital, right? The networking, introducing her to key people. Don't be the guru mentor that has to know everything. Be humble, introduce her to other people, say, I don't know when you don't know. Your job, I think, as a mentor is to help her build a really robust network that'll be useful for her moving forward. Thank you so much for providing those key behaviors because I think oftentimes people hear this term mentoring and it's a little ambiguous because maybe they haven't had the best experience with mentors in their career progression or in their life. And so they're like, oh, okay, we have a mentor program. What does that mean? What are those actionable behaviors that we can actually measure? Are we being successful? Are we engaging appropriately and effectively with men and women? And thank you for bringing that up because oftentimes the idea is that women need to seek out men mentoring because we need their guidance and their wisdom and their vast knowledge which in some key places, that's important, right? Because of the position. And as you mentioned, there is not 
very many women in high leadership places in the military. But there are women who are there. And so for men also being able to learn from these women who have gone through and paved the way and and been those trailblazers in those key positions, the value of the lessons that they've learned that they can also take away and continue to build on their career and pass down to, you know, folks that they're going to mentor along the way. Yeah, I think that's so important, Tracy. And in, in the research, Dave and I have just wrapped up for the new book, Good Guys, about how men can be better allies in the workplace for women. One of the really consistent findings is that men who have women sort of in their inner circle, right? Whether these are confidants, these are allies, sometimes they're mentors, senior women mentors. Those men are just better in a lot of ways. They're better relationally, as Dave was suggesting, their EQ and interpersonal skills get better. They've got a lot more empathy for the experiences of women in the workplace, and they really kind of get it when it comes to inclusive leadership. And last thing I'll add there is if I've got women in my network who I've earned trust with, those women are often willing to help save me from myself when I do something stupid you know, in the workplace or I say the wrong thing. They're going to give me feedback, and I can kind of count on them to do that. So I would say a key thing men can do for themselves is establish a network of women who trust them. And that's work that we men have to do. And I think there's also some ownership on women's part because I think there's a tendency to be a part of the key man, man hating club. You know, the pendulum swings either too far to the left or too far to the right. But if we all learn to have these conversations that may be uncomfortable at first because it puts us out of our zone of familiarity and what we tend to be comfortable with. And if we can have those conversations the organization is really what's going to benefit from these leaders being developed, from these conversations being able to be had about how can we come together and partner to make this organization better and really reminding ourselves of what's the mission here. And really for me as a psychologist in the military, thinking about that performance enhancement piece is really about how can we develop better leaders And so I'm just so grateful for the work that you both are doing and the research. And again, the Athena Rising book has been just a tremendous impact for myself personally and professionally. And I'm really excited to read Good Guys and wanted to just for takeaway for our our audience, what are some key takeaways from the follow-up with Good Guys as far as how can our male allies be good guys? So here's one of our favorites, and it's Brad and I've been doing a lot of writing recently about this in different outlets, and it may come as a surprise, but when we start talking about how men can be better allies for women in the workplace, we actually start with the home because we say that gender equity starts in the home. And the reason is, is if we don't, you know, we can't be an ally in the workplace. We can't throw on our ally cape and suddenly, you know, be this different person in the workplace and then they see, you know, people are seeing you when you leave or how are your relationships with other people and they just don't buy it. It comes off as very inauthentic. And the reality is that if we don't equalize things at home first, we're never going to get to equality in the workplace. And so we're talking about the, again, the division of household responsibility and division of labor, the unpaid work around the everyday chores that are going on there. And women for decades, if not longer, have been doing so much more than men. And, and while it's true that that has shifted over the last 20, 30 years, and you can look back and probably at our fathers and grandfathers who were doing less than we did, 
women are still doing twice as much as men when it comes to childcare and, and the division of household responsibilities. And it's not just that, it's even, it goes even as far as the cognitive labor, the emotional labor that goes into running a household in terms of planning and organizing and keeping track of all sorts of different important things that, again, it takes up part of your, that emotional and cognitive labor in your mind. So it's important that we as guys in start to invest and, and do our fair share there when it comes to that. And the, the other half of this is parents, that it's important for us as dads, you know, the men in the family to role model for our kids. And so for our sons, we know that when we were all in equitable allies for our partner at home, that again, our sons are watching and they have a more more inclusive perspective of gender roles so that when they go enter into the workplace, again, they're going to have different expectations about what that should look like and what they expect for themselves. And then finally, for our daughters, again, as fathers who are in there and and our daughters see us as being these equitable role models, that the research shows that they're more likely to persist in their careers or more likely to reach their career aspirations. And it's really interesting. They're also more likely to go into more non-traditional professions and industries like the military. And I think that's another great win for us. So we start at home, we think we can can start to begin to solve some things in the workplace too. And I guess my favorite, I would just add from all the new research, Tracy, beyond establishing really terrific relationships with women you work with and working toward friendships with them that are trusting, the other piece of this is being willing to be a public disruptor. And I can't think of a place more important than the military for male allies to be willing to do this because you you know you've been in these environments you know that there are all kinds of sexist comments and harassing behaviors and you know biased comments that get made daily that have a gendered component they diminish women in the workplace we hear them all the time men tend to be bystanders especially when they're a group of other men primarily and you know a big message from our research is dudes have to be willing to disrupt. They got to say something. They can't allow bystander paralysis to set in, even if they just say, ouch, you know, or that didn't land the right way with me, or, you know, we don't do that here. These are not heavy lifts, but men can be reluctant to call out other men to say that's not okay. And until we get to that point where more men are comfortable with that, we're going to have a long way to go to get to real equity in the workplace. What great points to make because I see almost daily, the challenges that women face of either, you know, keeping a stiff upper lip and just driving on when clearly there is a comment that's been made that's not appropriate and they come and discuss. And, but then if they do speak up, they're seen as a complainer, not a team player. You're playing the gender card. You're being too sensitive versus if a male speaks up and says, Hey, that's not okay. That carries more weight with the other males that are present at the time. And the research backs it up too. When guys do this, when they speak up and say something, there's no punishment. I mean, there is a fear that guys have. They think they're going to get punished, but they don't. The research doesn't bear it out. Whereas if you're a woman and you speak up on behalf of somebody else, another woman, then we do find that there are negative attributions made in terms of performance evaluations and other places too. So it doesn't hurt guys. In some cases, it's actually you're seen as being, again, an advocate, right? Somebody who's a champion who's out there championing diversity and inclusion. And in many places, that's seen as a positive. So my final question for you both is two parts. What advice would you have for that young female officer or NCO 
who's looking for a positive male mentor? What should she be looking for and how should she approach that? Dave, do you want to talk about one or the other? I can jump in with either. I love them both. Yeah, I love them. Me too. (laughs) Go ahead. Pick your fave. Okay. Well, so I'll talk about what to look for. Maybe Dave can talk about the approach. You know, so what to look for? Look for, you know, that male who is already quite collaborative and reciprocal in his relationships. And you're going to see this as a pattern, right? He doesn't come off as a guru. He's not hierarchical in his relationships. He tends to be somebody who lets you know that he's learning from you as well. So there's this real sense of reciprocity in the relationship. He's approachable. He's got good interpersonal skills. And if you don't know who these guys are, maybe you're new to your unit, simply ask, you know, take a poll informally of some of the other women who are already there and just say, who are these guys, you know, that are kind of what Dave and I would call the good guys. They they already have demonstrated that they're not only open, but they're actively interested in promoting diversity and equity. Who are those guys? Who are the guys that are safe to talk to? And then Dave, the, the approaching how to do that million dollar question. Yeah. You know, it's interesting that you know, asking somebody to be a mentor right off the bat, and especially if it's somebody that you don't have already have a good close working relationship with, that's a big ask because now you're asking for a lot. You're asking for a relationship. So we often tell people to, in their practice or thinking about, you know, as you're going to approach somebody, that maybe you're just colleagues or you just happen to kind of know each other professionally, but you're really interested in receiving some mentorship from this person to Again, think about the small ask and contextualize it. And how can I say, oh, well, you know, I, hey, I saw you presenting on this particular topic and I really like to learn more about it. Would it be okay if we had a cup of coffee? Can I buy you a cup of coffee? And, and who doesn't want that, right? And again, it's a small ask and it's not asking for a relationship right off the bat. The other thing that's really important about it is it contextualizes it. So in particular, as we think about from a cross-gender perspective, it's useful to not make it this ambiguous ask about what is their intention? What are they really asking for? Contextualize it. And so people know exactly what you're asking for and then the context that it's in. And that, again, makes people much more comfortable and much more likely to also to accept and to say yes. Wow, thank you both so much. I know a lot of young lieutenants and you know buck sergeants as far as in the army are really gonna appreciate hearing some of that advice because there is this kind of awkwardness. Hey, can mm-hmm. you be my mentor, right? Um, and, and how do I go about doing that? And then as you had mentioned, what's the perception? Oftentimes, you know, with sexual harassment and sharp you know, people are very concerned about what is this going to look like? What's the perception? Is there fraternization? That type of thing. But if we can clearly know how to engage in these types of relationships and how to ask for them and be clear about what we're asking for and set the context of the relationship, I think everyone can benefit from that, that clarity of conversation. So thank you both for being here. For our listeners who are interested in learning more about Athena Rising or Good Guys, there'll be a link in the show notes. And also, if you would like to reach out and ask our guests more questions, we'll have their contact information below. Dr. Smith, Dr. Johnson, thank you so much for joining us. And we look forward to seeing more of your work and how we can also learn from you in promoting gender equity in the military and in the workplace. Thank you both so much. Thanks, Tracy. Thank you, Tracy. Thanks for including us.